Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Progressive American. I'm Connor, back with another morning podcast about the week's news from a progressive perspective. Welcome back to the show. It is October 9th, 2021. Today we are talking about the Pandora Papers, sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, and Facebook's recent scandals. With that out of the way, let's jump into the news. On Sunday, a leak from the International Consortium of Journalists revealed that the secretive world of offshore trust funds was larger than initially thought. The Guardian described the leaks as, quote, the biggest leaks ever. It involved 35 world leaders and 300 public officials. Among some of the leaders discovered is King Abdullah II of Jordan, who has a property empire in the United States as well as property in Malibu, California, valued at $100 million. The leaks involve approximately 11.9 million documents, many of which come from Trident Trust, a private trust in Oklahoma. And while no U.S. officials have been exposed by these papers, including presidents, the U.S. is not off the hook. South Carolina has become a tax haven according to these documents, meaning that people who want to hide their dealings can hide their money and the information behind it in these trusts. If you're a textile magnet caught in a scheme to launder the proceeds of an international drug ring, go to South Dakota. If you have some human rights accusations against you, or were an ally of a recently deposed dictator, you can hide your money and pay little taxes in South Dakota. Now, however, that may be made more difficult by the fact that the people are watching you now. What is important to know here is that there is a burgeoning and increasing powerful industry of secretive wealthy people hiding their money so they don't have to pay their fair share or face scrutiny for their crimes. Allegedly, of course. And while it is hard to tell how many people use this system or how extensive it is, it is almost certain that this industry of secrecy, corruption, and money hoarding will continue unabated if something isn't done. The U.S. has long warned about this kind of thing in other communities and other nations, but rarely has it ever discussed about how our own tax policies contribute to that very thing, and it appears some states want to be like Sweden and Panama as a tax haven. I bring this up because not only do I think it's worth noting, but also because this trend towards hyper-secretive trusts is not going away. States like Nevada and Alaska are already considering making bills that will replicate the tax haven status of South Dakota, and it is almost certain that other states will follow suit. This means that these could be a haven for people who otherwise would not be trusted to put their money in the United States. Iranian theocrats, people who were involved in illegal nuclear weapons trading, anything that would be of scrutiny to the public and to the international community could become an issue here in the United States and by extension influence our economy. That's a problem. Imagine how much money already influences our politics. And then with new laws, with new changes in state laws, we could see more people, more corrupt influence getting involved in our politics and local communities. Imagine how much that would hurt things. So what the American people and what you need to do is keep an eye out for this. If there's something in your state law or if there's some state proposal that you're seeing that seems to match this kind of behavior, you should raise hell about it. Are these people making it easier for trust to hide what they're doing, who their clients are, who's putting money with them? If there is, then you should take that information and spread it far and wide. If you have a local paper, send that information to them to raise hell. A state paper or even a national paper is greater exposure to draw attention to these issues if you can.
do whatever it takes to get attention to these issues. The fact of the matter is that once somebody in power finds a way to save money, they will pursue that matter to the bitter end. And it is up to you and me and every other citizen to make sure that they don't do that so they don't take control of our political system. The Pandora Papers are not the first leak to show that the wealthy are growing more and more power on an international scale. So you and I have to work to end that. There have been papers before this, and there will be many papers like this. It is only going to get worse if we don't do something. Speaking of abusive uses of money, I wanted to talk to you all about what's going on in Alabama. Sunday, Slate Magazine reported that the governor of Alabama, Kay Ivey, signed a law that used COVID funding that they got from the federal government to build two super prisons. The prisons would house approximately 4,000 people in each prison. The state plans to use $400 million of the $2.1 billion federal relief money they received to build these prisons. Now, the argument that Alabama makes is that with the rise in crime, they need to increase prison sizes. Now, if that was the case, and if it was truly necessary, they would not have waited till COVID came around to do this. They wouldn't have waited for federal funding to do it, much less wasted our time using COVID relief funds to do it. They would have done it with their own money and time. Instead, Alabama is taking money that was supposed to save lives against a disease that has killed 700,000 people to lock people away instead. Mind you, Alabama has a debt of $8.9 billion, which is significantly less than that of the U.S. government. They could easily spend the money necessary to pay for these prisons without wasting the money of multiple states that never agreed to this. Nobody in Illinois or in any other state got a voice in this. Instead, we got a stimulus package that paid for these prisons, which nobody agreed to. And that's just something I want to bring up, not because it's just, oh, they're wasting our money. It's because any person can make this argument about where the COVID funds go and let their partisan identity guide it. For example, Illinois was a big target of this. Illinois was requesting more COVID funding, and one of the ways that Republicans attempted to block this was claiming that Illinois would use it to pay off its debt. It didn't, but that was the argument that was being made because it was a Democrat state receiving that money. And that's something that is consistent throughout this entire thing. When the Republicans needed to shore up their base and hopefully win in the midterms, they were perfectly fine with a stimulus package, but they were going to do everything they can to make sure their guys got the money, their state got the money. And that is something that blows my mind. Because when you see somebody complaining about how Illinois isn't using the COVID funding or any other Democratic state isn't using the funding in the exact way that was initially agreed upon, you can just point to Alabama, and they'll be just as quiet as they would be when they talk about the debt when the Republicans are in power. That is to say, they don't talk about it at all. So this is a bit of a tidbit for me. I think that when I look at this, when I see it, I see this not so much as an example of some particularly shocking news, Republicans being tough on crime. So no, what I see here is a form of political and partisan opportunism that is symbolic of a lot of Republican policies today. I can't change what's happening in Alabama, and most of my viewers probably can't either. If you're a Democrat in Iowa, it's going to be particularly hard to push back against this. But what I want people to remember is that this particular incident, this particular law, has not been objected to by the National Republican Party, the State Republican Party in Alabama, or any members of the Republican leadership, because deep down, they agree with this. 
When there's this whole debate about COVID stimulus or any future stimulus payments that may occur under the Biden administration, just remember, Republicans will gladly take the money to use it for their own ends and then accuse the Democrats of being wasteful. And to be clear, Democrats aren't perfect, but let's not pretend that the Republicans aren't playing games with this either. Now, speaking of corruption, we turn to Trump and one of his lawyers' newest problems. Now, not long ago, one of Trump's lawyers got into a bit of heat over his involvement with a document that he wrote outlining exactly how Trump would overturn the election despite Biden's victory. Now, the document was widely criticized and condemned online and in the news as an unprecedented attack on our elections. The lawyer, John Eastman, was the centerpiece of this scandal, but he soon faded from public consciousness for a while. But now it appears that Eastman has not gotten off without consequences. See, on Tuesday, Talking Points Memo reported that a nonpartisan voting integrity organization in California is demanding an investigation into Eastman's involvement with the now infamous memo. Norman Eisen of the state's United Democracy Center wrote to the California Bar Association arguing that it was of the utmost importance to determine whether or not Eastman had engaged in professional misconduct. In response to this, Eastman said, Is it now a disbarable offense to engage in political speech? Well, for one, no, that's not what's going on here. To put it lightly, this argument doesn't hold up. There are no criminal demands in the letter put forth by this organization. Not one. So what is being described here is not a criminal investigation. It is civil. So what's actually being described here and what's being demanded is an investigation into the ethics of keeping John Eastman as a lawyer. Is he fit to be a lawyer despite his behavior? And if it is proven that he is not fit, it is not actually an attack on his civil rights to disbar him. If he's found to engage in misconduct, what Eastman is actually facing is consequences for his own actions. Nobody's going to throw him into a prison cell or something like that. And that's what the First Amendment usually protects you from, reprisal by the government. But in this particular case, he is being targeted for being unethical. That's the issue. He lied to his client and told him he could overturn the election despite there being no precedent for his argument whatsoever. And despite that, he is arguing that it is a freedom of speech issue. And this is what I think is going to happen with a lot of these Trump lackeys who kind of indulge this fantasy that you could somehow overturn an election. They attached themselves to this toxic figure that they thought they could control. But as time went on and as time really showed everything out, they realized very quickly, I might add, that they couldn't control him. He controlled them. And they indulged him more and more. But now he lost, and by extension, they lost. They're going to have to deal with the fact that they can't find protection in Donald Trump, and he can't protect himself either. So, John Eastman, I doubt you're listening to this, but I hope you enjoy the consequences of your lies and your damage to democracy. You've earned every investigation, every reprisal you will receive. Speaking of consequences, Facebook is in some serious trouble. On Monday, Facebook and its affiliate apps, Instagram and WhatsApp, went down for six hours in an unmitigated social media disaster. The outage results were felt worldwide, with Americans mocking the failure of Facebook staff to properly run their own site, while others more dependent on WhatsApp struggled to keep contact with important people around the globe. In Lebanon, COVID test signups were hampered as many relied on WhatsApp to sign up for these things. Facebook lost millions of dollars, and many people were forced to deal with consequences that were created by staff members who screwed up within this company. 
Then there is the testimony of a former Facebook employee. Former Facebook employee Frances Hogan came forward on Sunday introducing herself in an interview on 60 Minutes and explained that Facebook, despite knowing that their algorithm has harmful effects on people, refused to change their system. Prior to her interview, she leaked a trove of documents that seemed to support her claim. As a data scientist, she was able to understand the algorithm in ways that many people could not, although Facebook continues to deny her claims. She has also noted that Facebook was covering up the information that would further prove her point, including research showing that Instagram had harmful effects on young girls' body images. In other words, their sense of self was harmed because of Instagram's algorithm, the very same algorithm that makes it so profitable in the first place. The information she released to the Wall Street Journal is extensive, but it is also worth noting what little Facebook has done to actually disprove these notions. Prior to the election, Facebook had a team intended to deal with the division and content that otherwise caused harm on their platform. And afterwards, that team was disbanded. Not long thereafter, the same conflict-oriented content that drives their profits continued unabated. Facebook is, as it always has been, a curse. It controls so much of our lives, takes data from unwitting members of our society, because one man believes he has the right to determine much of our lives and what we can do with our media presence. And yet, the site that he designs, that Mark Zuckerberg designs, fails to function on a basic level, and their profits don't always mean good service. You would think with all the money they were making, they would actually be able to provide a product that doesn't destroy things and that actually works. So whatever the outcomes of this testimony may be, one thing is for certain. Facebook can't continue in its current form. It can't continue to own so much of our society and do so little good. It can't continue to own WhatsApp. It can't continue to own Instagram. And quite frankly, I think the social media platform itself should be broken up just because of how many people are on it and how much influence one man has had over the entire property. It is insane. And the fact of the matter is this one man, Mark Zuckerberg, has been completely and utterly irresponsible with the power he has. I don't know if many people are aware of this or even care to look at it, but under Facebook's watch, there was little to no concern about the conspiracy theories about Muslims that were spreading in Burma that led to attempted acts of violence and successful attempts of violence against Muslim people in a massive attempt at genocide. Facebook was responsible for that, and yet nothing happened to it. It never pays for its crimes or its malfeasance, ever. So it's time to change that. Facebook needs to be broken up, and quite frankly, Mark Zuckerberg should be prohibited from ever touching any social media company ever again. He's unworthy of the position he has. In more somber news, we turn to the revelations in France. A report by the French government found that 200,000 minors were abused by Catholic clergy over several decades. The report estimates that the amount of perpetrators was as high as 3,000 people, most of whom were priests or clerics. It's an unmitigated tragedy, and quite frankly, it's a horror show. Now, before I get into this, I want to say a few things. I'm Catholic, I was raised Catholic, I served as an altar server, and was the confirmation sponsor for both my brother and my sister. This hits home, and it is downright infuriating that yet another example of abuse finds itself showing up in the exact same pattern that we saw in Germany in 2018. This is a global problem, and the sadder thing about this is that it is probably a fraction of the victims that are actually coming forward. So with that in mind, I want to say this to the victims. 
I am so sorry that you went through this. There is no excuse for what happened to you, and no amount of denial or obfuscation will undermine the validity of your pain. I hope to God you never have to deal with this ever again, and I hope nobody ever faces what you did. As for the church, there needs to be a complete reset. Every major institution, every rank, and every church needs to be turned upside down to root out this ungodly stain on the church and on the people who suffer because of it. When people kneel at the altar of God, they don't ask for you to touch them. They ask you to save their souls. They trust you. That's all they ask for. You are supposed to return their trust with goodwill and none of this nonsense that we keep hearing about. So let's actually start earning that trust. Because right now the church is completely unworthy of the trust it receives from so many people because of how long this has been going on. If Pope Francis is serious about curbing this issue, as he claims he is, then it is high time to take things further, to take examples and use them and show other priests what happens when you fail to uphold your oath and abuse your parishioners. It's time to start excommunicating some of these people, not just moving them from church to church or, or wherever you want to go. It's time to start kicking them out. When they swear an oath to God, they swear to uphold the dignity of their parishioners. And if they can't do that, they don't deserve to be priests and they don't deserve to be members of the church. Turn them over to the police the first time you find out something about them, not the second or the third time or 30 years later in some document in a basement. It needs to be immediate. These priests, these pedophiles, are not men of God, so stop treating them like they are. And this isn't even like the first time that this has come forward where I've had to say this, not necessarily on this podcast, but in public discussion before. This is a problem that the church refuses to take seriously because they don't want to take a heavy hand and they don't want to be condemning anybody. But this is a point in which it is absolutely justified to start condemning some people. The church is supposed to serve the people and protect its faith, not hide behind platitudes and nonsense and let victims struggle for an iota of dignity and justice for years on end. If the church wants people to trust it and actually look at it as a source of good in the near future, then it needs to start acting like a source of good rather than just a predatory abusive organization with a lot of money. There is no more room for excuses, no more rooms for games or any other nonsense that hides the truth. There needs to be complete and total transparency. No more games. It's time for some actual justice, not just a press release. That's all for this week's episode. Thank you all for joining me. If you enjoyed the episode, feel free to share it with your friends on Twitter, Facebook, and any other sources you'd like. Though I would prefer you keep it to Twitter. Facebook's not really worthy of the attention. If you want to see more content outside of the podcast, consider checking out the website at progressive-american.com. You can find it in the link in the show notes, along with all my sources, which are now available for your consideration. All of my content is there, including podcasts, articles, and any other work that I do. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to hearing back from you next week. <laughs>